I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am Dave Kittle, owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently speaking with practice owners about partnering or acquiring some or all their practice. And today we have two guests on the show. One main guest, we got Colin McNulty, SBA lender on the show from First Savings Bank. And also on the show, my colleague and uh, business partner, Marshall Sturman, a forensic accountant here with Fieldmaker Group. Colin, what's going on? Good much, Dave. How about yourself? All is well here. Marshall and I have been doing a bunch of Zoom calls, looking at different physical therapy uh, deals and potential financials and potential partners. So today we wanted to get you on here. You're one of our uh, potential SBA lenders and partners that we're looking at in regards to financing options and kind of seeing what else is out there. And at the same time, I'm like, hey, let's get you on here, Colin, because you'll be able to kind of educate our audience on ways that they can either expand and acquire other clinics if they're looking to grow, as well as some of the components that might uh, factor in for them if they are looking to sell to a group like us or sell to someone else. Great. Awesome. And then Marshall, how about a quick brief intro or background? It's been a while. You've been on the show before, but just because it's been a while. So give yourself a little bit of an intro or a catch up. Okay. I, I, I was a partner in a large accounting firm for 25 years, retired, and uh, now I'm out doing uh, different things. Uh, I, I hooked up with David on uh, Fieldmaker, and uh, we're looking at a lot of different practices. You know, I do forensic accounting, but I do M&A, I do structuring, I do a lot of different things. And we see a lot of different things with a lot of different business owners. Some want to sell 100%, some don't. Some are realistic about leaving the business and some, yeah, I need X dollars to retire. And and if, if their price is outrageous, they're never going to get a deal done. And that actually, why don't we start there? Because Colin, the sellers out there, the practice owners or any other business owners outside of healthcare, but especially in healthcare, that's one of the things that we've seen is like whether they do have realistic expectations about asking price and terms. Typically yep. more so if they have a competent broker or advisor in their corner. And oftentimes if they don't, then they're just like if they have a million dollar practice, they're looking for a million or you know, 1.3 million as an asking price without any math behind it. And then yep. we tell them, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but we kind of tell them what you would want to hear, which is like, hey, there's a little bit of a formula here. We need to look at, you know, if we're going to do financing or even if we don't do financing, even if we're going to pay out of our own bank accounts, we still want to underwrite the deal. We still want to go through an exercise to underwrite this deal. And here's like one of the main ways we do it. We look at net operating income. We looked at your, we look at your adjusted EBITDA. We're going to look at whatever it takes to potentially finance it. Again, whether we're going to finance it or not, we're going to look at whatever the annual debt service payments would be. And we need to come up with what is this debt service coverage ratio? And we can only take that to you, Colin, or yep. to another lender if it's at 1.5 or greater. And if it's closer to two, you know, it's like a slam dunk. But if it's under 1.5, it gets tighter. And a lot of these practice owners don't understand that. So maybe yeah. we could just start there if you can give us a little bit of background. 
Yeah. And one thing I would tell all your, your practice owners is don't pay attention to the news. And when you hear about purchases, like multiples change, the bigger the business gets. So if you're looking at a company that has, you know, below a few million dollars of EBITDA, the multiple you get paid on your performance is going to be different than if you have 5 million plus of EBITDA. You start to talk about people who have professional money going into that in the small business arena. I tend to not get into the discussion points of is the business worth X or here's the multiple you should pay because A, it's not my area of expertise and B, the business is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. The real answer to it though is what you're trying to accomplish is going to determine whether or not you can finance it. So you could buy it, you could sell your business for 10X multiples, but if no one can finance it and you don't have the cash, it doesn't matter. So really what I try to boil down to is not all addbacks are created equal. You know, it can be in your acquisition, but as far as financing is concerned, what you tend to see in most small businesses is owners run a lot of their personal expenses through the business. Car, phone, insurance. I've seen people rehab houses, take vacations, whatever it may be. Resorts and vacations. Definitely. That's right. Yeah. And then so then they want to be reimbursed for that as if that wasn't an expense. Whether or not the buyer decides to add that back is, is between the buyer and seller. But from a bank's perspective, what I try to do is keep EBITDA plus the difference in owner's comp as the means of repayment on the loan. So if you know, if you want to throw numbers to it, if you have $400,000 of Let's say you have half a million dollars of EBITDA plus owner's comp. New owner is going to take $100,000 out. So you have $400,000 left over. And then there's another hundred, hundred and fifty thousand of other stuff. That's the, the insurance, the car, the country club, whatever. I typically underwrite to the other stuff never materializes. Not, not for me, at least. Because what most owners kind of don't pay attention to is that you're going to do that as well. It's not going to hit your bottom line because you're going to run your car and your phone and other expenses through the business. So as far as achieving debt service coverage, typically, if you can make the deal work just off of the actual EBITDA plus the difference in owner's comp, you tend to get a pretty easy deal through credit at that point. Where it becomes more difficult is if you're adding other pieces in. And I would always tell buyers that's a good way to, to push seller notes as well, especially contingent seller notes. Because that probably is some real money that'll materialize out of that, but it's rarely all of it. So you can push the sellers a little bit on that to say, hey, if you feel like this is really viable, let's do it in a seller note. You'll get paid no problem. But you tend to see multiples in the small business arena ranging anywhere from three to five times. That's you know some industry relevance to that. But the other piece I would tell people on their purchase price to not ignore, specifically in the medical field, is going to be your working capital. If you buy a business for two and a half million dollars, but the cupboard's bare and you're not going to, you know, if you're doing an asset sale, you're going to have to get reaccredited with all your Medicare, Medicaid and insurance. You might have 90 days before you see any money come in. So if you need, if you have a fairly sizable practice, that could be another half a million, $700,000 that gets added to your loan. So buying a business for. 3x feels great unless you're also having to fund what works out to another one and a half turns because of of working capital. So the purchase price for the buyer is part of the equation is what I would tell people. It's not the final number. If you're acquiring a business and rolling it under your existing practice, you probably aren't going to need as much working capital. But if you're selling it to someone kind of mentally be prepared that you're going to have to leave something in there or else you're going to have to accommodate that on the purchase price. Right. And so 
we're looking at a couple different deals and I think we'll try to just kind of talk in generalities in regards to some of these numbers. But one of the situations is like a practice that's kind of like in the range of like two to three million in revenue and they have like approximately two hundred thousand because you're just mentioning working capital. So they have about two hundred thousand or so, give or take, line of credit right now. And that's with obviously with their current bank. And so yeah. if we were to partner or acquire that therapy practice, is it the smoothest to just like have that practice owner settle, like complete that line of credit, and then we maybe get a line of credit or working capital through you and the financing of that deal separately? Are there any like conflicts there or challenges in terms of like drawing down that line of credit that owner kind of settles that uh, as opposed to like reassigning it or kind of transferring over to us? Yeah. And it depends on the type of sale you're doing too, Dave. If you're doing an asset sale, it's going to have to be redone because it's a new company effectively. Also, most loan agreements would consider a sale an incident of default. So it's not as simple as just, oh, I just took it over. The other bank has to basically do their whole process again. I mean, as far as what's easier, it really depends on the type of SBA lender you're working with. Some SBA lenders are pushing entire relationships. They want the deposits. They want lines of credit. They want everything else. Other lenders just say, hey, we're just an SBA lender. Let's just do that. Maybe we give you a small line of credit, something like that. But my experience tends to be working with the old bank is fine, but you're still a new customer to them, even though they know the existing business. But So I would probably say your best route is to start fresh with the new bank that's doing the loan. If you did try to work with the current bank, you'd have to have... SBA doesn't really allow intercreditor agreements either. So it'd have to be a very specific... They're only taking a lien on this stuff and the SBA bank is taking a lien on this other stuff. A lot of banks don't work that well within the confines of that. They generally want a broad UCC on the whole business. So partnering with a bank and a... Uh, SBA lender can be more tedious than than you would think. As far as inheriting the line, that you'd have to redo all the documentation again. So I would usually recommend just going with the SBA lender as your your new bank. In a lot of instances, you can keep the deposit relationship at the local bank just to keep them kind of happy with that. But as far as trying to match up working capital through the existing line, that's usually going to be a, a hard hard sell to, to make happen. Got it. And I, I do want to circle back on all the changes through SBA. And yeah. There's been a lot of changes this year that are very positively different than the past many years. Before that, Marshall, any questions or you know insights in regards to things that like we can kind of riff on or chat about or ask Colin about? Yeah, I guess one question I have. You know, we we talk uh, for the SBA. Obviously, we need to put up some equity. So, is there a way to structure equity if if the current seller stays in for X percent? Is there a way to use that? In some fashion, whether he's part of new co, buying old co, or just remains with the in, with his interest as equity. Yeah, there's a that's part of what Dave was referencing. There has been a a pretty seismic shift in the SBA's policies that took effect in May of this year. So prior to May of of 2023, when you acquired a company, you had to buy 100 percent of the shares. That created a lot of obstacles when there were like key employees that had small ownership percentages. Or if, you know, it could be relevant in the medical field, obviously, but it, it also occurred a lot in the trades, like plumbing, electrical, where that owner had the master license, which is required, and the new buyer did not. And you used to have to say that person's got to be out of the business within 12 months. That was the old rule. 
So that that made some of these acquisitions more difficult. So in the under the new guidelines that took effect in May, sellers are allowed to carry over their equity or carry over a percentage of equity. You do have to do that as a stock sale if you're going to do that, just as an as a heads up. But where that becomes relevant, the way it's worded today is they can roll equity, but they're under the normal guidelines of any other SBA, which is if they own more than 20% of the business, they have to personally guaranteed a loan. So the deals that we've looked at where the equity roll is coming, it's usually been like a 10 or a 15% equity roll. The other piece to it is that they took out the rule as part of that of that the, the owner has to exit within 12 months. That was a, a very specific rule previously that now just seems to be kind of gray. They're owners of the business. So clearly they can't be forced out of working there after 12 months. So where that has come into play as far as equity though, Marshall, that doesn't impact the equity into the deal. The SBA still requires a 10% threshold. 10% can be met a couple of ways. One is just cash. You know, you're buying something for a million dollars, you put in a hundred thousand. The other rule that changed, this was available previously, but they they changed it and made it a little more beneficial to the sellers. 5% of that number, so you know, half of the equity can be done via a seller note that is deferred for two years. No payments, no interest. You can't accrue, but you can't make payments. And then it turns out to match typically the SBA term of 10 years after that. They further muddied the waters a little bit and said you can do that. I think it's up to 7.5% interest only for two years and then matching the SBA term. That one starts to get a little more difficult because... There's payments involved right off the bat. So that can hit your debt service coverage. So, you know, and banks have been taking this approach a little differently of, well, who, broadly speaking, financing a deal with almost no cash in from a buyer is not usually going to be a, a re- very well received at a bank. Some are being more aggressive than others. And I, I've told Dave this before too. I'm going to caveat all of this of we're getting a bunch of noise about congressional uh, members not liking these changes and that they've talked about just scrapping all of them. So I wouldn't write this detail in in pen as much as I would probably in pencil right now. But as of today, you can technically buy a business with only 2.5% equity in, which is beneficial to buyers and sellers. I don't know that it's the best course of action for most, but you know those are the rules today. And I'll, I'll also put another asterisk to this. That is an acquisition from an outside player. So you're either a key employee buying out the owner, you're a general practitioner right now buying a practice. When you own a practice already and you are expanding, you can do 100% financing for that. So if you're a multi-location practice and you're buying you know, a fourth location, let's say, you can actually finance that 100%. As long as you're in the same NAICS code on your tax return, and as long as you're buying it within your your own entity, you can finance that 100%. And that's not just the purchase. That's the closing costs. That's any other kind of capital expenditures you might want to roll into there. All that can be financed at 100%. When you say so buying... I didn't, I, didn't, own, I didn't know that. So that's great. Go ahead, go ahead Marshall. When you, when you say buying within your own entity, can it be a subsidiary of your entity? So that's a bit of a gray area. The devil's probably in the details a little of that. but. Historically, I would think it probably depends on the tax return more than anything else. The SBA is a little more specific to tax returns than a bank, maybe. So if you're forming a subsidiary within your within your existing entity 
it, it probably depends on the wording on it, quite honestly. As it rule, if I'm going to give you a blanket answer, it's supposed to be no. But as with a lot of SBA rules, depending on how things are worded and structured, you can probably figure out a way to make that work. And let's say you had a seller note. Mm -hmm. Could that be a convertible debt where he converts it to equity? So I would have told you not a chance previously. Right now, the way that the SBA wording works on that is that they're going to go to that conversion as the percentage. So if you, uh, you know, making up a number here, if you have a seller note that's equivalent to 10% of, let's say you put in your normal amount of cash, 10%. You can do almost anything at that point. But the SBA would say if the convertible note was to ever give the seller greater than 20% equity, the equivalent of greater than 20% equity, they're gonna have to guarantee that loan. So I don't know if I answered that right for you. But so if you have a 10% seller note, let's just say you have a 10% seller note and a 15% equity roll. And there's language in there that says that 10% seller note can be converted to equity down the road. The SBA is going to look at that and say that person has 25% ownership, whether they've converted the equity or not. So if it's just a matter of there's a 10% note that after a certain period of time converts to equity and that's it, then I don't think there would be any rule against that as long as the original equity was still the 10%. That equity note can't be rolled over if that's kind of where we're going with that. That issue goes away if, in fact, the seller is willing to go on a hook and, be, and sign a PG, correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. And then the general rule for that would be, this is an SBA rule. This is just a, every bank's going to have their own metric of this. But anybody that we're financing, we want to have control. So that buyer has to own at least 51% of the business. And then in terms of the PG, it's 20% or more. Anyone that's, that's anyone right. that's on the, the capital structure of 20% or more will have to sign a personal guarantee. And if they don't want to, for whatever reason, then they could be they could own 19 or 19 and a half or 19 point whatever percent, correct? Yeah, the SBA is with a lot of rules in the in the SBA program. They make a rule and then they say, but don't do this. So what you don't want to do, what they don't like, they call it structuring, is 19.99%. We had an attorney a long time ago kind of question us for like, well, that's the rule. And the SBA basically said, yeah, but don't do it or your guarantee might be in risk. So... I would always tell people, come up with a formula. If it's 19%, make sure there was math to how you got to 19%, not just, well, because then I can avoid the guarantee. Whether or not that's what you're really doing, you know, isn't for us to say. But when you say the equity value is this and I rolled over this, that's how I got to 19%. That's how you justify that. And the other piece, Marshall, to your question on guarantees too, it's not just the PG, it's the full kind of ramifications of the PG, which includes house pledges, possible spousal guarantees on the house. It's It'd be very surprising to me, maybe outside of a family transition, to have someone personally guarantee it when they rolled equity. You know, it, I, I can't think of a good scenario, but if a dad and mom owned a practice and they were selling it to one of their kids, maybe then they would. But just an individual guaranteeing a loan would... Uh, I've not seen anybody have a have an appetite for that yet, just I guess is the way to say it. <laughs> so one does an SBA loan for a million dollars and a year later they want to buy another practice. Yep. I presume one can expand that SBA loan at yep. that point or is it a new loan? It's a new loan. So you wouldn't want to redo the original loan because then you'd pay a guarantee fee on the entire new loan. 
but you can do subsequent SBA loans. Your total outstanding debt with an SBA cannot be $5 million or more. So you could do five $1 million deals. You could do a $5 million deal. And then three years later, that would have been paid down to say four. You could do another million dollars. It's not like five is the most you'll ever do. It's just the outstanding amount at that point. So where people have used this very effectively have, you know, a lot of people in some of the spaces I play in always say like, you got to go for a big business right away. You got to buy something with a million plus of EBITDA and otherwise you're buying a job or something to that effect. I've seen a lot of very successful people buy small businesses multiple times. So you buy like, instead of buying a $5 million business, you buy one for 800, then you buy another one for seven, and then you buy another one for two. And you gain the efficiencies of doing that. Because all of that seller's comp then falls to the bottom line. Unlike one big business where you're having to accommodate for new salaries, when you add on these these new businesses, a lot of times you can absorb most of that. So to answer your point, Marshall, I would rather do three or four smaller sizes to get to the five than do one big $5 million deal. Is the interest rate always tied to prime or it could be tied to... I think what the whatever the new thing is. Not, so for- not live or anymore. Yeah, no. So... Yeah. I actually can honestly answer, I don't know if you're allowed to tie it to something else. Most banks do not because the way that SBA lending works for most lenders, not everybody, is there's a lucrative secondary market to buy the guarantees off. So when you do an SBA loan, and you you won't hear most SBA lenders tell you this, but this is how we make money on SBA loans. If you do a million-dollar SBA loan, the guaranteed portion is $750,000. There's a very robust secondary market to buy that guarantee. Is effectively a risk-free guarantee for the for the investors, and these are going to be institutional people you know the names of that are buying these. It's not random people off the street usually. So what they will usually pay, depending on what the market's demanding at that point, is somewhere between an eight and upwards of mid-teens return on that. So if the average is ten million-dollar loan, I can sell seven fifty. The bank makes a fee of seventy-five grand. That's the lucrative nature of SBA lending for most banks. That is, I'm pretty confident. I, I don't know this 100%, but that is tied to the prime, you know, the spreads over prime. So I think a bank can do whatever it wants for pricing if it wants, whether that's fixed, whether that's tied to an internal number, but there'd be no secondary market for that then. So the, we can do pretty much whatever we want pricing wise if we were, if we were holding them, but that secondary market plays to the prime floating adjusted, adjusted rates. Just wanted to recap earlier. So you said, like, for example, someone buys a million dollar business, 10% of that, the loan to value, 10% would have to be the down payment. Half of that, so 10%, so a hundred thousand, right? Mm-hmm. And then half of that could be a seller note that is on full standby. Now, previously I thought it was like multi I thought it was like it was the life of the SBA. Life of the loan, which typically would be what? 10 years, non-real estate. Yeah. Yep. So 10, 10 years non real estate. Now it's only two years. So that would be what? So 50 grand of that $100,000 down payment, mm-hmm. 50 grand, the seller would have to agree to a seller note of 50 grand that is on full standby for two years. They do not see any of those dollars for at least the next 24 months. Correct. That's correct. And, and then at that point, it would be with some interest rate and it would be tied to whatever. Is that something that interest rate, is that negotiable between the buyer and the seller? Yeah, there's no... There's outside, no outside of you guys? Yep. So the whatever the terms are on the seller note, there's no real justification of why you have or don't have things. What 
The SBA uses the term reasonable a lot of times. Of course, they don't define reasonable. But if you said, I'm going to pay 25% interest, you'd probably as a bank go, that's not reasonable. But yeah, you can do whatever the term you want, as long as it works for the, the debt service coverage. So what has happened over the past year and a half is deals that would have worked based on the old interest rates don't anymore. So you're, you're finding those deals that are 5% seller notes more difficult to finance because the multiples haven't really come down. So your debt service has gone like that with the interest rates. But to answer your question, Dave, if the deal penciled out from a cash flow perspective, it's a million dollars, 50 cash, 50 seller note, fully deferred for two years, and then likely has a, a 10-year repayment plan after that. Got it. So the, real quick, so the 50K, two-year seller note, then you would need 50K from the buyers, right? And then you said Correct. something like, but it could go down to 2.5%. So what was... If we were going to yeah. have to pay 50K, I know we have to pay at least 25K. You were saying, what was that other section so you, that... You, uh... You're hitting the muddied waters portion of what they did when they made these changes. It was very convoluted to me. But so as long as the debt service pencils out, you know, forgetting the option one of the deferred, what you can do is up to, I believe, seven and a half percent of that 10 can be interest only to a seller with the borrower only coming in with two and a half percent equity. So you the structure on that same million dollars would be 25 cash, 75 percent or $75,000 seller note, interest only for, I believe, two years, and then you amortize it out. And then the other 90 would be the bank. I will tell you this, most banks are unlikely to do that. Not that I shouldn't speak for most banks. A lot of banks are going to say, we need a little more in than than 2.5% for somebody who's buying a practice from the outside. Now, where you do get a little more, I guess, lenient on those things is key employees buying out you know, some it's it's somebody who's relevant to the business. That's a little different. But if it's just, hey, I just graduated school, I got done with my residency, I did this, whatever I, you know, whatever my training was, and now I'm ready to buy this business, you probably gonna need to do more than just that. You could stack it with another seller note that's paid immediately or something to that effect. But I don't really present the two and a half percent option very much because I don't think it's as likely to get done. The five percent equity, five percent deferred for two years has a much higher chance of getting done, at least at our bank. I can't speak for every bank. And, and I would always caution this too, of even within the rules, some banks require different things. You know, Maybe they, the structure works, but they want more equity or something to that effect. The bank reserves the right to say, the SBA might only say 10%, but we want 25 if needs be. So the rules are the SBA's guidelines. They're not, you have to do them this way. But you could get in for 2.5% equity under the current guidelines. Got it. But even if it was 5%, let's say, so that 50K, that just for the audience, if they don't know, all the fees and closing costs, like how much of that is rolled into that 50K? It would be, let's say 50K, so 5%, let's say you couldn't help us get to the 2.5%, but we got to put 5% down. Okay, so 50K, what other costs outside of that? Or some of these closing costs are kind of rolled in. Yeah. So the important thing on the equity too, it's not just the purchase price, it's the project cost. So the project cost of any of these deals is going to be the purchase prices versus the bulk of it, the closing expenses, which I'll go over in a second here, the SBA guarantee fee, and then the big one is working capital. How you're buying a business can be impacted there. So independent of size, any SBA loan on an acquisition without real estate included, just a business acquisition, 
probably cost you about $13,000. That's going to to get the documentation and closing. That's going to be an SBA packaging fee. It's going to be a business valuation that the SBA makes us get. It's going to be loan documents, which is the bulk of it. That's probably about five of it. And then there's a lot of little stuff that adds up, background searches, UCCs, flood file, all that. That usually works out to about $13,000, give or take. Whether you're buying a business for $400,000 or $4 million, that's usually the documentation slash closing costs. The biggest cost negative to the SBA in terms of, of closing expenses is the SBA guarantee fee. So the way that this is calculated is... This is rough because it's tiered, so don't use this exact. But you take the loan amount, you multiply it by the guarantee, which is 75%, and then take about 3.5% of that number. So if you borrow $4 million bucks. 75% is 3 million. 3.5% of 3 million is a shade of, you know, plus or minus $100,000. So that's the fee that funds the SBA. Although taxpayers kind of are on the hook, so to speak, it's really banks putting the money out in the form of loans and borrowers paying this fee. And that fee is identical bank to bank. We don't, we don't see that money. It goes directly to the SBA. Now, your commentary on total cost, Dave, last year they had the rule where under half a million dollars, there's no guarantee fee. Between half a million and a million, it was a lowered fee. They are now pushing that up to a million dollars could have no fee on it. That's loan amount, not purchase price, the actual SBA loan. And one to two million dollars has a much lower fee than it did previously. So there's, you know, in the SBA world too, it's not tiered. So once if you're at 999,000, that's different than a million as far as the fee is concerned. So if you're on the smaller end of the acquisition size, you can avoid kind of what what I think is the biggest financial negative to the SBA is the guarantee fee. If you're only borrowing a million or a million five or something like that, your fees are dramatically lower than they would have been last year, but for sure two years ago. Other than that, you can also roll any diligence into this. So if you have accounting, legal, any other kind of you know costs associated with doing the deal, that all gets added up. So on a $2 million acquisition. I'm going to use a million because that's what we've been going off of. So you have about 13000 of loan docs, guarantee fee. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say it's about $6,000 there. And let's say you have another 10 of... Well, probably more like 20 of accounting and legal. That's probably light too, but bear with me. So that, you was, like, million, that, was, like, that was like 39K. I just, I just added Yeah. So up. yeah. So you're at a million thirty nine. Your down payment is, or, you know, whether it's you yourself or kind of accommodating with the seller note is 104,000. Yeah, it's 104,000. So they add all those costs into the total project. Now, if you add working capital onto that, say of $200,000, well, now you're at a million two thirty nine. You're putting in $124,000. So the everybody focuses on the purchase price. And while that's the vast majority of it, it's actually all based off the total project cost not just the purchase price. So under that scenario you'd put down 125 or you'd have a what would that be about a 6560 equity seller note structure. I heard you say you make a presumption that the new owner will uh, continue the practice of of all these uh, uh, personal expenses. But what if that's not the intent the new owner is looking to do something much larger and, and keep the company clean? Uh, it's not. It's for underwriting, not for purchase price perspective. This you'll you'll find different banks look at addbacks differently. So, 
from my perspective, having done about 75 acquisitions, give or take, the experience I tend to have is that those ad backs don't materialize in the way that the sellers and the brokers present them. That doesn't mean that they were wrong, but you start to say, like I said, there's other stuff that pops up. You can't really fake EBITDA and you can't really fake owner's comp. Maybe fake's not the right word, but those are real numbers that you can really get your hands around. So if it was a strong enough deal, you know what I always tell people is we can look at those. I don't want to rely on them, though. If you're saying, hey, this deal does not work unless we have this $100,000 ad back for a deck that I did at my lake house, that's that's a little scary to me. Um, if it's just, hey, that's the gravy, so be it. Um, I think each deal is going to be a little different, Marshall, and each buyer is going to be able to command a little bit different kind of result of that as well. If you have a person who you're lending a million dollars to and they have $800,000 of liquid assets post-closed, your level of risk tolerance is going to be higher than somebody who goes, hey, I had 50 grand. I put it all in there. This thing's got to work or I'm I'm toast. So you're, each each deal and each buyer is going to be a little bit different in terms of kind of how liberal you want to be with with the ad backs. I have a little bit different approach. And so my the, I don't want to monopolize too much time with this, but my background, the bank I was at for 10 years, we didn't differentiate between SBA and commercial. So when I did an SBA loan, it rolled into my portfolio. That's pretty unique in my industry. What I learned over those 10 years, I don't focus on the close as much as most of my peers do. Almost everybody in my space and myself included now with my current role, it's all transaction driven. How much volume can you bring in? Historically, commercial lending is build a portfolio, manage it, know your customer inside and out. The, what, the general nature of how SBA is set up is, is it's much more transactional. What I learned over those 10 years was what happens after the close. You know, whether it's three months or five years, it changed a lot of my perception of how I go about these deals because figuring out a closing for an SBA loan and, and a, getting it done isn't that hard. It's a very easy metric of cash flow. Do you have the background? Do you fit the very, very basic SBA qualifications? It's kind of like a checklist driven environment. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly like that because a lot of things get missed. Working capital, customer concentrations, things like that are where I see people struggle post-close. So that's where, Marshall, I, I take, I don't have a, like a basic answer on what I will or won't look at it. It's very deal specific. If you're an existing practitioner buying someone else, for instance, that's very different than I've never owned a business before. Right. I'm buying this today. So you, you kind of give leeway to experience. You give leeway to personal strength. But it's, it, it is a difficult piece for me because the deals I've seen struggle historically have struggled for things that you knew in the credit process. And that was the unique experience I had of 10 years of, of keeping these deals in my portfolio. You know, everybody asks about SBA default rates. What's the default rate on an SBA loan? It's pretty low. I'm going to guess it's in the low single digits of, of acquisitions that we have to go to the SBA to get our guarantee back. But that's a catastrophe. That is bankruptcy, liquidation, the last resort. There's a much higher number, which I have no basis for this number other than my own anecdotal detail of about 20 or 25% that struggle after they buy the business. Struggle could mean I thought cash flow is going to be 2x, it's only 1.2, or it could be, holy cow, I don't know how I'm going to make payroll on Friday. That happens a lot more than people think. And when you go to kind of do postmortems on what went wrong and what didn't, almost 
I'm going to guess 75, 80% plus of the time, the problem that caused that struggle is one you identified in the credit process. It was, and, and ad backs are one of them that I see as a, as a problem of, we just kind of took their word. They ran a bunch of personal expenses through here. Kind of seeing if that really materialized is very difficult post-close. That was a long answer, Marshall, for it depends. It's a good answer. <laughs> so the, the bank, just a quick question. So the yeah. bank continues to service the, the yeah, so that, loan? That, yeah, that sale on the secondary market is behind the scenes. The borrower never sees that. It's right. still payments made to us going forward. I, I'm assuming within almost every bank's language, they have the right to sell off a portfolio if they want to. But additionally, again, full disclosure, we make money off servicing these as well. There's a percentage right. that we get still. So it benefits the bank to both sell the guarantee off, but also continue to, to act as the intermediary for that investor that bought it to make sure the payments are being made. And, and yeah, the, business owner, the, the, the business owners and sellers out there should not take offense to this because yes, you know, you're benefiting on the back end and that's just a great structure because on the front end, you can potentially buy a million dollar business for 50K or 100K. Yeah. And it's incredible. Yeah. Like we live in the greatest country in the world still and that this is an opportunity or that this is even a value uh, available yeah. is just almost insane. And we're super lucky to have it and other countries certainly don't have it. Yeah. And a lot, some of the spaces I play in, there's a, there's a decent amount of Canadian contributors to it. And they often ask, well, what is the equivalent of Canadian SBA? Because this is only a US-based product and there isn't one. And I would always tell people this, any lender who says they're doing this for benevolence is not being true. We, we all are in this to make money. You can do it in an ethical way and in an upfront way, which is why I always tell people this is why this is how you do this. Uh, but we're not here for for none of us are in this for benevolence. There may be a point in my life when I near retirement age and I say, you know what, I just want to do stuff just to to give back. You can help people in this and you can be, you know, it it serves a purpose. These acquisitions can't get done without this. And part of the reason banks are able to do this and take on that level of risk is because there is a financial benefit to it. Now, when we sell off the guarantee, the other piece I'll tell you, we don't transfer that risk to the investor. If the deal goes sideways, we have to buy that guarantee back. That's why there's a premium on it is because they, they don't take on that risk. So even though the bank, you know, everyone would always think, oh, well, you make so much money off of these selling these guarantees off. We also take hits down the road on if something. There's stuff, if there's so, defaults. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's no different than your mortgage loan that gets sold. I, I just, it is different because we maintain servicing. But most of these are about risk mitigation, not just about fee income. And so, you you know, there's a calculus there. If you sell the guarantee off, your maximum exposure becomes X, Y, or Z. That's what lets you do these loans. But I, I would always tell you, we're <laughs> I say banks and insurance companies seem to always have the biggest buildings in every downtown. And, uh, you know, there's a reason for it. There's a reason. Yeah, but it, it's not, and it can be done, like I said, in an ethical, honest way. And that's why I always tell people, you know, this is how we make money off of this. Yeah, I got to run. Let's wrap up because we certainly can talk about other topics, have you back in the future, whether Marshall's available or not. Colin, what's a good place for the audience to reach out to you? I know you reach out to me on Search Funder and then you reach yep. out to me on LinkedIn. So you're yep. all over the place, uh, whether it's email address, LinkedIn, website, what's a good spot for uh, the audience to reach out to you and connect further? Yeah, email is probably the easiest. It's my first initial C, my last name, McNulty, C-M-C-N as in Nancy, U-L-T-Y, at F, 
as in Frank, S as in Sam, B as in boy, bank.net, fsbbank.net. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter or X very sporadically. I'm not as social media driven as a lot of uh, my peers are, but you know, I, I always tell people too, even if it's not, even if it's just exploratory questions or you don't know, there's a, I can give you the kind of the rundown on, on your risks more than anything. I, I think I would always tell you my big push is not on closing, although that's obviously a part of this. It's on, did we get there the right way? Every person you, you hear in my role is going to brag about their close rates, how often they close, how much they close. Sure, that's part of the deal, but very few are going to be able to tell you after the closing, here's what happened. And that's what I typically try to impress upon my prospects because while I do this on a daily basis, this is going to be brand new to almost every person I'm talking to. So, and I'm quick to tell people, no, if I can't do it, you'll know very quickly. Excellent. Thank you both for your time. This is awesome. If you guys find this interesting and valuable, subscribe to the Day Kill Show on YouTube. You can also find us on iTunes and Spotify. We'll catch you next time. Marshall, thank you for your time. And Colin, thank you for your time. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.